Turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. That's in the Old Testament. Some of you may need to look it up in the index of your Bible. Habakkuk chapter 3. Amen. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you felt like that there was no hope and that everything that you had hoped for suddenly was not working in your life? Things that you had depended on, things that you had trusted in, suddenly were not working. Today I want to talk to you for a few moments on a, on a message that I've entitled, When Hope Fails. When Hope Fails. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity that you've given, given me this morning to speak to this great group of people. I pray that you'll help me to be able to bring the message in such a way that it will be beneficial to their lives. Father, I know that there are times in life that it seems as though all hope is gone. But Lord, let us never allow that mindset to settle in on us. Because we have discovered through the years, Lord, that in you there is always hope. Lord, help us to navigate our way to that place where we can believe today that there is hope in every situation. I pray for the ears of this congregation that they will hear your word today. Hear beyond the words of this man. And connect in the spirit realm with you. And go home filled with faith today knowing that there's nothing too difficult for you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the greatest statements of faith I think found in scripture is the words of Habakkuk. When he speaks in chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. But Habakkuk didn't have much of a voice in those days. He was one of the minor prophets. Now what that means is, the theologians describe two groups of prophets. There were the major prophets and the minor prophets. And they did not base that information on, on the importance of their message. They actually determined that by the length of the letters that they wrote. So a major prophet would have been someone like Isaiah who wrote a large uh, book of scripture and, and contributed on a large scale. Habakkuk, Micah, uh, some of those are considered to be uh, the minor prophets because while what they said was important, they said it quickly and then got out of the way. Now, I know that you're hoping that I'll be a minor prophet today. I'll do my best to accomplish that if I can. But Habakkuk was also different in that uh, most prophets spoke to the people after they have heard from God. But Habakkuk spoke to God on behalf of the people. They were in a very difficult, difficult time historically. And so Habakkuk began to have this conversation with God and ask questions like this. God, why is this happening? Why are we experiencing what we're experiencing? And then he moved on and he began to ask God, how long is this going to happen? God, we don't want to just know why. We want to know how long are we going to have to deal with this thing? And the really discouraging thing from the fleshly standpoint is 
that Habakkuk heard God say something that he did not want to hear him say. Because what God told Habakkuk is, is that I am going to allow the Babylonians, who were some of the most hated people on the face of the earth at that time, some of the meanest people, some of the most wicked people on the face, God said to Habakkuk, I'm going to use them to bring judgment and discipline upon my people. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, but I would say this to you. God can use whoever God wants to use to bring about the work that needs to take place in our lives. You see, Judah had gotten away from the things of God, and they were not serving him faithfully. There was sin in the camp. There were things in their lives that they were participating in that were opening the door for the enemy to attack them. And so what God said to them, to to Habakkuk was, is that because of the sin of my people, I am going to loose the Babylonians upon them and I'm going to allow them to oppress Judah in such a way that ultimately will drive them back to me. The most hated people on the earth, the most wicked people on the earth, the most evil people on the earth, God says, I'm going to release them into your lives and into my people for the purpose of not destroying you, but to develop you into the people that I have called you to be. I don't know about you, but that's a frightening thing to me if I think about it in terms of the flesh. When God says that I'm going to allow some things to have an effect upon your life, evil things that will touch you, hard things that will be difficult for you to overcome, when God says that, if I'm only thinking in the flesh, that's a frightful thing to me. But I'm thankful today that His people don't have to rely simply upon the realities of the flesh. But when it seems as though all hope is gone, that we can hope in him and believe that he will turn our circumstances and our situations to good for our lives. With all of that information and background, historically and contextually, let's now look at chapter 3. It's actually verses 17, 18, and 19. Notice what he says. He says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph in the Lord and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. My, what a statement of faith. That is a squaring of the shoulders and saying, it doesn't matter what my circumstances look like in the flesh. I serve a God that is greater than my circumstances. And he is able to give me victory even when it looks like in the flesh that everything in my life is failing. And he had good reason to believe that. And he begins to tell us about this. He affirms that everything was failing around him. But even if all those things fail, his stability is not in the earth. But his stability and his hope is in God. 
He first of all points us to a time of famine in the life of Judah and in the nation of Judah. And he talks about the fig tree. He says if there are no buds on the fig tree, then even in that situation, I will trust in the Lord. You see, the figs were the type of crop that they, 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 they brought a lot of money in for those who, who were in agricultural business. And they, they were the thing that they highly depended upon in their lives in that part of the world. So the figs were very important. But he says, if there are no buds on the fig tree, I can still trust the Lord. So what he's saying is, is that I can't trust in the buds, but I can trust in God. If there are no buds, what it means is, is that there is no hope for harvest. Even though seed has been sown, the enemy has been unleashed upon them and allowed to create a situation where the fig trees could not produce the intended harvest. And so what he was saying here is, is that when there is no bud on the tree, there is no hope for a future. Now, for some of us today, we can relate to that. Because in our lives, the fruit tree, the fig tree, has ceased to bud. You've looked for the signs of harvest. You have, you have tried to investigate and see if if something is working, maybe in the corner of your life, that would produce hope for the future. But you have not been able to put your finger on anything that would bring you hope. It is as though the bud is no longer active on the tree of your life. And just like Habakkuk, you would say, there is no hope for the future. There is no bud on the tree. Figs in the time of Israel represented peace and it represented prosperity. When there were buds on the fig tree, there was peace and prosperity and it signified. So historically and contextually, we know that if there were no buds on the physical trees, it meant there was no hope for a future harvest. Spiritually, what it meant was, is if God is not working in our lives and on our behalf, then there is no hope for the future. One of the two New Testament writers says it like this, If in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. So he said there is no bud on the fig tree. Then he says the grapes are not going to produce. Now you know that they use grapes to make wine. Wine is typical in scripture of a time of celebration. Anytime that there was celebration going on, they, they had wine available. But he said the grapes are not going to produce and we can't press, press them to make the wine. So instead of a time of rejoicing, there's a time of, of, of pain and, and sorrow and those types of things. There's no grapes. And so since there's no grace, grapes, then we are filled in our world with great sadness. Some of you today, you don't have anything to celebrate in your life. I mean, it seems like that everything that you've trusted God for and hoped for, it is not producing uh, the, the celebratory uh, atmosphere that you had hoped for. And you're living in a life 
uh, and living in an atmosphere and in a season of your life where it seems as though all hope is gone. There's no happiness. There's no joy. You wake up in the morning and there's nothing to celebrate. You don't know what the day is going to bring to, uh, uh, upon you. But, uh, but he, it, it was the same thing here. He's saying there's no grapes. And so we cannot celebrate. There's nothing that brings joy to our lives. And what it signifies in the, in the spirit realm is that there is no sweetness of life and there is no fruitfulness in our life whatsoever. How many of you here today are parents? Can I see your hand? You ever remember when your children are very young and, and, and they're just so sweet and you know they come over to you and you're sitting there in the chair and they come over and they... They, they hold their hands up and they want you to take them into your lap and hold them in your arms and, and, and you just you hold them and rock them and love them and you, you kind of brush their hands. and I mean, I mean, they're sweet, aren't they? I mean, they really are sweet and then they grow up. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> and sweetness turns sometimes to orneriness. And you have to say things like, if you don't stop that, I'm going to whoop you. I, oh, I'm sorry. We don't whoop people anymore. I'm sorry. I lived in the wrong age. Let me tell you, my, my mom and dad wore my britches out, and I'm still alive. But we don't do that anymore. If you don't stop that, I'm going to ground you from your device. I'm going to make sure that your life is as terrible as it can possibly be. Why? Because they are not being sweet like they were when they were young. And what Habakkuk is saying here is that there was a time and a season in our life of celebration when God was blessing us in such a way that we had sweetness all around and fruitfulness coming forth out of our lives. And, and God was blessing us and we experienced that. So the grapes were not producing. And then he moves to the olive trees. Now the olive trees in Israel were... Uh, they were difficult to grow there because it, it, they were slow growers anyway. But, but when you take an olive tree and plant it there, you have to plant it in a soil that is not rich with, with, uh, with minerals. And, and, and so it's hard for any kind of thing to grow there. And so it takes a long time for the olive tree to establish itself to the place where it can produce fruit. And so he's saying now that the olive tree is not producing. The other thing about olive trees is, is that they only bear olives every two years. They don't bear every year. Now here in Kentucky, if you, if you sow seed for sweet corn, you can get sweet corn all year round, it seems like. And every year for sure. It just continues to grow and continues to grow. But the olive tree only produces fruit every two years. And so if they missed a harvest, then there was no chance that they would get more olives until two years down the road. So it was a hard crop to produce, and it was a slow grower. Now they would pick the olives, and they would press them, and the most valuable part of the olive was the oil. Now we use olive oil to cook with. But in Israel, the most important use for olive oil was to be used as, as an emollient for the skin. It, it was, uh, you know, they didn't have Walgreens there and they didn't have CVS. So they had to have something that they could put on their skin. 
It, it is very arid there. It is very dry. It, it, there's a lot of heat in that part of the country and so uh, in, in the world. And so it was, not, it was not unthinkable that if they did not have the olive oil to put on their skin, then their skin would get very dry and it would begin to crack and, and, and it would begin to hurt. I've, I've got a little place on my, my knuckle right there that I skinned a few weeks ago. And boy, there was a time... Because it was in that fold of the finger. I mean, there was a time it just hurt so bad. And I would use it every opportunity that I had. Well, I can't do that because my knuckle hurts, you know. Or I'd call the granddaughters over and say, I've got a boo-boo. I need you. And they would kiss it and put, put a, you know, put a Band-Aid around it. And then I tried that on Donna, but it didn't work. She said, suck it up, big boy. You'll be all right. But you know, in the folds of your skin, if, if, there's, if, there, there, if there's not moisture there, it can get dry and it, it can begin to crack and it can become so severe that it's even hard to grasp something and, and certainly hard to use your hands for work in those days. They didn't have the kind of technology that we have today in our world and so they had to work with their hands and, and if, if their hands were cracked and bleeding it was difficult to get the work done and what he was saying here is if there's no olive oil then they cannot use it to put upon their skin so that their skin will be moisturized and they can use those. But there was also a use for the olives in worship. They took the olive oil and they would, they would light the lamps in the temple. Without the olive oil, they could not light the lights in the temple. Now, there were other types of oils that they could use, but it, it, it burned dirty. Do you know what I mean by that? When I say burning dirty, if it burned dirty, it would burn black smoke or some other kind of, uh, of uh, smoke into the building, and so they couldn't use it. But olive oil if used properly, could be used in the lamps, and therefore they were able to gather in worship. But not only did they use it for that purpose, but they used it to anoint. Now, the scripture in the New Testament says, If there be any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church. Let them anoint them with oil and let them pray for them. They weren't talking about oil out of a bottle like we use. They couldn't go down to Walmart and get them some oil. They used the oil that came from the olives. But if there were no olives, then there was no, uh, no oil for anointing. Now that's the historical reality. But what about the spiritual significance of it? Well, the spiritual significance is simply this. Without oil then the things of the world that come against us will break us and, and crack us open and cause us to bleed and make life more miserable as we live our lives out. And without the anointing oil, we wouldn't be able to operate. We've got to operate in the anointing. It's the anointing of, of a holy God that flows into our lives and through our lives that allows us to be successful in the things that we are doing. Oh, we can, we can have all the religious stuff in the world and we can have all the programs and put all the things together and we think we got it all lined up. But if all we do is participate from week to week in some kind of religious ritual, we will be void of the anointing of God. I pray for a pouring out of a fresh anointing of God 
God's Holy Spirit upon the contemporary church today. Amen. He said the olive trees will not produce. And then he talks about the grain. They were known in those days for the barley and the millet and the spelt and, and the wheat. And when he starts talking about the grain now, he's talking about uh, the most basic thing of life. How many of you know that you can live a long time in your life with just bread and water? Now, thank God we don't have to, but you can. In many prison camps and things of that nature, they will give them just bread and water. When they have the bread, it provides enough nutrition for them that they can live and survive. And so what he's saying here is, is that even that is not available to us. Because the barley and the wheat is not producing. So even the very, the very minimal, basic thing that we have to have is not available to us. Even though we trusted in it before, it is no longer there for us. And then he moves beyond the, the bread and the grain. And he talks about the sheep and the cattle. The sheep were used for sacrifices in the temple. They were used for their milk. They would occasionally eat sheep, but they didn't eat sheep very often because they were more valuable to them in other ways. They could sell sheep to people who needed to go to the temple to make a sacrifice before the priest. And so rather than killing them and eating the sheep, they would sell the sheep and make big money on them. But not only that, the farmers kept the sheep because they made great milk. They could drink the milk. They could use the milk in their cooking and in their baking and things of that nature. So the sheep were not eaten so much as they were used uh, as a part of their lives. What he's saying, there are no sheep in the pen. What we had in the past, we don't have any longer. There are no sheep there, and there are no cattle either. So the very livestock that we had, the very things that sustained our lives, it's all gone. We're living in a time of famine. We're living in a time where it seems that there is no hope. And so we don't know what we're going to do. And yet in that moment of realization, when he realizes that things cannot get any worse than it currently is, faith rises up in him and he refuses to be defeated. And he begins to think about the things that will bring victory into his life. That's how it happens. So how, how do you transfer your faith from where you are to where you need to be? Well, here's how Habakkuk did it. If you'll look in chapter 3, verses 3, 4, and 6. I want to point out some words for you to, to, to grasp today. You see, in the midst of all this bad news, Habakkuk knew that I need to change my focus. I really have to start thinking about some different things but if, because if I don't start thinking about some different things, I'm going to remain focused on this, this sense that there is no hope. So in chapter 3, the last part of verse 3 and 4, he, he says this, His glory covered the heavens and His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise 
and his ways are eternal. Now, that, that's the New International Version that I read from. Let me read it again. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, and his ways are eternal. So prior to making the statement of faith where he says, it won't matter to me if there are no grapes and no olives and no figs and no pigs and no sheep and no cows. And before all that, I've come to the realization that my hope is in God anyway. So if all of this goes away, nothing has changed. The stuff of life may have changed But my hope and the source of my hope has not changed because God is still on the throne. Amen. Notice these words that he uses. He talks about the glory of God. What's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about the weightiness of God. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see the Hebrew word Kabod, kabod. It speaks about the weightiness of God. It's not trying to suggest that, that God needs to go on a diet or anything like that. He, he's not overweight. He's not obese. It, it's, it's talking about the quality of God. Now, if you were to go down to the, to the, uh, to the, the what do you call, I start to say grocery store, but you can't buy gold at the grocery store, can you? If you go down to the jewelry store, thank you very much. And you went in there and said, I'd like to buy a gold ring. The jeweler might say, well, what quality of gold would you like? There's cheap gold and there's medium range gold and, and there's extremely expensive gold. I always ask for the brass. Amen. That, you know, it's just gold. I can't afford that. But he's talking about the quality here. He's talking about the weightiness of God. He's talking about the quality of God. He's talking about the difference between some junk ring that you can buy in a gumball machine and the most expensive, elaborate gold that you can get your hands on. That's what he's saying about God. He's saying God is not some junk God. He's not just some God that exists among many. He is the only true God. And the quality of this God is superb. So he's talking about the glory of God. And then he talks about praise. He's talking about how that when the people of God start praising the person of God, the atmosphere changes. That's the reason I don't like to be around negative people. I don't like to be around Debbie Downers and and Doubting Thomases and people who've always got something negative to say because it changes the atmosphere that you're living in. Our job is to be the salt of the earth. Our job is to be the light that brings light to a dark world. Our job is to change the atmosphere. And what he's talking about here is that I remember the times and the days when the people of God in their blessings were rejoicing and blessing and praising the name of this quality God that I am talking to and and, and about. He's talking about the quality of God, the weightiness of God, the importance of God and then the praise and then he talks about the splendor he's talking about the radiant nature nature of God God just doesn't stay in himself but he radiates out of himself 
He radiates into our lives. He radiates into your life. When it's dark all around you, He radiates into your situation. His love, His power, His might, His authority. It radiates out of His being and into the people of God. Amen. So He's talking about the splendor of God. Then He says, Concerning those things, he said, he said, it covers the earth and it fills the earth. Now, how many of you know what it means to be covered? If you don't know what it means to be covered, I want to show you. John, will you throw that picture up there on the screen, if you will? Did you get it? There it is. That's what it means to be covered. It was 80 degrees. We had a campfire going. And my, my wife said she was cold. She said, go get my cover. And I went and got her cover. And I covered her up. And me being the smart aleck that I am, I wanted to cover her head up too. Amen. So that she could be completely covered. That's what it means to be covered. In the midst of your circumstances, in the midst of of what is around you in your atmosphere, you can be covered by the weightiness of God. You are covered by His glory. You are covered by His power. You are covered by Him. We don't know how to live a covered life. We don't know how to do that. We don't know how to live a filled life. It's like going to the restaurant and you get a glass of water or a cup of coffee and the waiter or the waitress comes out and, and, they, and they fill our glass or they fill our cup. But they don't really fill it, do they? Because if they did fill it, we would have to lower our head and suck it up so it could go down so that we can then pick it up without spilling it all over the table. We would rather not have a full glass. We'd rather have a partially full glass. I'm preaching to somebody today now. See, we've grown so accustomed to being partially covered like my wife. You better take that down now. I'm sorry. It's already been up there much longer than the price that I'm willing to pay. She is only partially covered. She wasn't all the way covered. They come with the water and they come with the coffee. And we don't really want them to to fill it all the way. Because we have grown accustomed to drinking a partially full cup. And we bring that into our spiritual relationship. And we say, God, fill me. I want you to fill me, but I don't really want any of that tongue-talking stuff. That, that's something I can live without. Just give me all I can get before I have to start talking in tongues. Or God, I want to get all I can get without actually having to be generous and giver. God, I want to be everything that I can be except a forgiver. I don't really want to forgive. God, I want to do everything I can to have, maintain a positive attitude, but I don't want to always be positive. We've learned how to live our lives partially covered by God. 
Let me tell you something today. You're never going to walk in the victory that God has for you until you finally decide, God, I want you to cover me from head to toe. I want you to take it all, whatever you have to have. God, I want to be filled to overflowing. I want to be one of those people that the New Testament talks about that says out of your your belly shall flow rivers of living water. I want to be full of you. Here's the reason that we can't do it, and I'm quitting for those of you who are keeping time. The reason that we don't live as successfully as we could in the kingdom is because we don't see things like God sees them. I want you to notice what he said. In verse 6, he said, his ways are eternal. Eternal. Come help me quit if you will. You see, oftentimes, we don't want to consider the benefits of eternity. We we, we don't want to consider what eternity will bring to pass in our existence. We want what we want, and we want it now. And we will not settle for anything less than the blessings of God right now. But Hebrews tells us very clearly that there were people who waited their whole life for the promises of God to be fulfilled in their life. And it never happened on this earth. But it happened in eternity. I've been thinking a lot this week about this election that's coming up this week. And you know I've tried to be very careful because I don't want to influence, I don't want to lose my influence with the Democrats or the Republicans. I believe it's possible to do that for preachers to get up and take a stand one way or the other and shut their influence down for for people who may be thinking and voting a different way. So I haven't done that. But today on your way out, I've got some information that the ushers are going to put on your hand about the voting process. You take it home, read it. This is not about that, but it's about the world that we're living in right now. We live in a world that seems like it's just going absolutely crazy to me. We're talking about a nation that doesn't even think twice about aborting millions of babies. You still with me? And whether you're Democrat or Republican, I have to believe that this scripture says that God is the giver and taker of life, not us. I just, I just believe that. talking about euthanasia and how that very soon euthanasia will be legalized in America. And I say the same thing about euthanasia. Who am I to determine who should live and who should die and the time of it? God's the giver and the taker of life. I mean, there are so many things that if all we ever do is just look at those things in terms of the flesh, it will blow our minds. And we will begin to say things like it's hopeless. It's hopeless. It's hopeless. Let me tell you something. As long as God is on the throne, nothing is hopeless. And the last time I checked, 
God didn't give over the power of his throne to anybody. He's still seated there in authority. come against America to drive us back to a place of repentance. We may experience some hard days and some difficult days, but listen to me, there's nothing that God cannot redeem. He can redeem it through His power and in His name. ago millions of Jews slaughtered in ovens. One of the most terrible things that you'd ever want to hear about in your ears. I believe God can redeem that situation. World War I, World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam, millions of lives lost because we couldn't get our act together. Can God redeem it? Not only can he, you better believe that there will come a day that he will. He'll redeem it. I got to thinking this week about those aborted babies. And literally begin to weep sitting on my deck for the millions of lives that have been slaughtered in the name of choice. just kind of spoke to me through his Holy Spirit and he said, I can redeem that. It kind of caught me by surprise. Lord, how can you redeem something like that? He said, because I am the God that created them before they were conceived in their mother's womb. I knew their name. Do you think it took me by surprise that they were aborted? It did not. And the instant that that child ceased to live in the mother's womb, that child was welcomed into my presence. For to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'm not saying that we ought to accept it. I think we ought to fight against some of these things that I've shared with you today with every ounce of spiritual energy that we have we should never sit back and say well it's just the way that it is no God can use his people to change the course of history and he can redeem every situation the Babylonians may get loose for a time but if they get loose There's coming a judgment day when they will stand before God. And so today, today I stand before you to tell you this. Regardless of what happens this week and how bad it may seem to you, whether you're Democrat or Republican or Independent, let me remind you, God is still on the throne. And if the fig tree will not bud, and if the grapes will not harvest, and if the grain will not grow, and if there are no olives to press, and if there's no sheep in the field or cows in the pen, 
let me tell you today, I will still put my trust in the God that I serve. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Stand with me this morning if you will. I'd like everyone in this house, if you're feeling, if you feel comfortable with this, join me down front, come into this altar. We're going to pray together before you leave.